improving patient safety is a team sport, but no specialty or individual group of physicians can do it alone. We know the healthcare system is not safe for those receiving care, but it's also very dangerous for those that are providing care. And when I talk to them, they say there's nobody in charge. We don't know who's in charge of patient safety in this country. COVID pandemic and, and all of its ramifications and, and complexities provides a lot of opportunities uh, to highlight and, and showcase this issue. Welcome back to Up Next for Patient Safety, where we envision a world where medical errors, adverse events, and preventable harms are avoided, and where we examine the most promising paths to prevent these tragedies before they occur. I'm your host, Karen Feinstein. CEO and President of the Jewish Healthcare Foundation and the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative, which is a multi-stakeholder quality collaborative. We've been working to reduce medical error for over 20 years, mostly unsuccessfully, but we can't give up because there's too much at stake. And that is the loss of approximately 250,000 lives a year and long-term injuries for many more. Today, I'm joined by a great leader in the patient safety movement and a good friend, Marty Hatley, who's been working to reduce medical error even longer than we have at the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative. Marty will help moderate today's conversation. He's CEO of Project Patient Care, a nonprofit organization that uses the voice of the patient to improve care. Its mission is to mobilize diverse healthcare stakeholders in metropolitan Chicago, to provide the best possible care to every patient every time by eliminating preventable harm and implementing systemic change to ensure consistent excellence. He also is co-director of the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety. Marty works internationally with the World Health Organization's Patient Safety Program, and he may be the best networker in the patient safety world today. Marty. Thanks, Karen. It's great to join you today for this conversation. Uh, let me start by thanking you also and the Jewish Healthcare Foundation and the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative for your tireless activity in this field as well. And I want to echo that we, we can't just give up on this because the problem is too big. Patient safety is fundamental. We, we all know that, and we're going to have a great program about that today. And although we haven't seen the improvement in outcomes we hoped for 20 years ago when we, you know, first embrace this as a, as a big issue. We've learned a lot through trial and error over the last 20 years, 20 plus years, and that learning can inform our work going forward. So I remain optimistic that real change is achievable and we get the opportunity to explore that today with some great panelists. Well, bear with me while I make introductions um, because we have a special episode today joined by a panel of passionate patient safety advocates. Each has initiated innovations that advance patient safety and all have been well-recognized for their achievements. So let's reminisce, reflect, and look to the future as well. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Clancy is the Assistant Undersecretary for Health for Discovery, Education, and Affiliate Networks at the Veterans Health Administration. Prior to that, she served as the VHA Executive in Charge. Dr. Clancy also served as the Deputy Undersecretary for Health for organizational excellence overseeing VHA's performance, quality, safety, risk management, systems engineering, auditing, oversight, ethics, and accreditation program as well for 10 years as the director of the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Uh, let me just say from my own personal experience, there's nothing quote under end quote about Carolyn. In 2015, Dr. Clancy was selected as the outstanding federal executive of the year by disabled American vets. Dr. Clancy is a general internist and health services researcher, and I'm proud to say a graduate of Boston College and the University of Massachusetts Medical School. She holds an academic appointment at George Washington University School of Medicine and serves as senior associate editor, health services research. Uh, let's move now to Dr. Ken Kaiser, the chief healthcare transformation officer and senior executive vice president of Atlas Research. He leads Atlas in efforts to provide clients with pioneering healthcare solutions and innovations. Dr. Kaiser is internationally respected for his many accomplishments in health system transformation, patient safety, quality improvement, and others. He's best known to me for his acclaimed transformation of the veterans healthcare system, the nation's largest, in the late 1990s when serving as the VA's Undersecretary for Health. 
He also is the founder of the National Quality Forum, and he established the concept of never events and safe practices. Dr. David Mayer is the former CEO of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation and remains a director on the governance board. Dr. Mayer is executive director of the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety. In this role, he leads specific quality and safety programs in support of discovery, learning, and the application of innovative methods to operational clinical challenges. Prior to his appointment as executive director, he served for over six years as vice president, quality and safety for MedStar Health. He also designs and directs system-wide activity for patient safety and risk reduction. Last year at the height of COVID-19, Dr. Mayer walked over 3,000 miles. This is true, we got to meet him along the way to raise awareness for patient and health worker safety. Uh, Dave, I'm sure you have a book and a movie coming from this experience. I, I welcome all three panelists. We're absolutely delighted you're joining us today. And I'm gonna turn this over for the first question to Marty. Okay, thanks, Karen. I'd like to start with To Air is Human, the Institute of Medicine's groundbreaking call to action on patient safety 20 years ago, well, more than 20 years ago now. When it was released on November 30th of 1999, it had a huge impact. Uh, polling showed that a week later, more than 50% of Americans were aware of that report. And all of our panelists were already involved and engaged in patient safety at that time. So my, my question really was, did the, the strength of the reaction surprise you? And what were you doing already when the report came out and how did it shape the work that you did going forward? Karen, why don't we start with you? Sure, thanks, Marty. Uh, so was I surprised? Um, a little bit, yes. Um, I think I was surprised by the um, magnitude of the reaction. Uh, on the other hand, when the report came out for the first time ever in the Institute of Medicine's history, um, this was announced from a Rose Garden uh, ceremony. Uh, by President Clinton, which of course does elevate it to a uh, certain place. And I think the number, 98,000, up to 98,000 deaths that could have been avoided really, really got people's attention. This was not uh, abstract, this was real. And after a while, people got that you could go into a healthcare setting for one problem and acquire something else that had may or may not have anything to do with why you initially sought care. Um, so the reaction was quite amazing. I was in a senior position at ARC at that time, which then had a different name, and it had a huge impact on what we did going forward. ARC became the leading funder for patient safety research. At the time, we were going through reauthorization, uh, and actually that was part of a name change. And it also positioned ARC as the lead uh, across the government, making sure that all parts of government were working together on uh, patient safety together. So yes, I would say it had a big impact. And very, very importantly, we had a series of uh, hearings where people could give testimony about what they thought were important problems in patient safety. I can't even tell you, I mean, the phone lines and emails were jammed because so many people wanted to share their thoughts. Providers had to be limited to three minutes and we had to have two overflow sessions to hear from all of them. So a huge impact. Yeah. Carolyn, I remember that too. And I, I remember thinking that it was, it was almost like somebody had acknowledged the secret, something that we knew was happening and maybe we didn't have the numbers or didn't, weren't comfortable talking about it, but suddenly here was the report and it wasn't a secret anymore. Um, and in terms of the research, I also remember when HRQ did that first sort of survey of what we had evidence for that would improve safety. There were like 26 or 27 things. And when I look back now at what has been produced and accomplished by HRQ in terms of just adding to the evidence base and the tools we've got, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a prodigious body of work. Dave, what about you? What were you doing then? And, uh, <laughs> and were you surprised when, when this came up? Well, Marty, surprisingly, I was the medical director at Abbott Labs at the time. Um, here's a story few people know. I left clinical practice for four years because our hospital leadership refused to address the poor outcomes of one of our surgeons I worked closely with. The physical and emotional toil was beginning to break me, and my family noticed it, especially my wife and, and my children. 
So they convinced me to resign my position as director of cardiothoracic anesthesia at the time and accept the offer from Abbott. And I will tell you, it was the best move I ever made. I learned things like Six Sigma, lean, quality improvement, effective teamwork and leadership skills, skills no one ever taught me during medical school, residency, or as an attending at the hospital. Well, after the report came out in late 2001, I was recruited back to the medical center because our leadership now understood many of the things I had been warning them and others had been warning them about for years. Um, They recruited me back so I could help lead quality and safety at the university and the medical center. And they also um, made me associate dean, academic dean of the medical school there. And I'm proud to say two years after I got there, we had implemented the first four-year longitudinal patient safety and quality care curriculum in a medical school. So uh, as you know, and you've heard me say for many years, I really believe the most effective way to start changing culture is by educating the young. Right, David, you went on to, I think, start a master's program in patient safety too at the University of Illinois. And, and then subsequently, when I think about your career, it's, it's been you know, deep, deep dedication to, to learning in this space. And teaching well, and so many thanks go to Carolyn who seated our first Telluride patient safety roundtable in Colorado in 2005. And over the course of the last almost 20 years, we brought over 1,400 medical students, residents, nursing students out to Colorado and to Washington and the other parts of the country to put them through four days of workshops on patient safety. That all started with an AHRQ small grant. Fantastic. Ken, I, I kind of remember what you were doing at that time because you were at the VA and you were already a, a leader in the space before the Iowa report came out. But what surprised you about the report and you know how did it shape the future of your career? Yeah, I, actually, when the report came out, I was three months into trying to establish this new organization known as the National Quality Forum. Um, I left the, the VA, although, as, as you say, I had been deeply involved in the uh, issues for some years and uh, had actually been on the IOM uh, group that was a predecessor to, to Air as Human. So based on that, nothing that was in the report was a surprise. Um, the information and, and the data was well known. The reaction uh, was interesting, and I think something that is uh, often overlooked that part of the the media storm uh, that uh, ensued from when the report was released was because one of the the media outlets uh, was going to break the embargo uh, on the report. And and that kind of catalyzed a media frenzy when the report was actually released on December 1st then. But the, uh, I think the the report was extremely helpful uh, in getting the National Quality Forum uh, going and focusing attention. Indeed, our first projects, uh, which were, as Carolyn mentioned, were catalyzed by a, uh, uh, an event that President Clinton held in the Rose Garden, uh, was to establish you know, these things that ultimately became known as never events uh, and some of the other early work that the NQF did. Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Ken. And I, I know, um, I, I mean, my memory from that time is that just leaders emerged and leaders, you know, really took this on as a priority. So we'll come back to that a little bit later with a question later. But Karen, I think you've got the next question for, for our team here. Yes. Well, in a recent podcast, um, I interviewed Jeff Cooper. He's absolutely amazing and early safety champion and pioneer and a legend. Um, in anesthesiology, even though he's not a medical doctor. Anesthesia was early. I'm talking about the late 1970s in owning its safety problems and adopting a scientific approach to safety improvements. Today, it seems to still be the only specialty that is demonstrably, dramatically safer and has helped make other specialties safer through their simulation centers. So you're all physicians. Dave, you're an anesthesiologist, hurrah. And so many people who've been active with us um, in healthcare reform, um, a disproportionate number are from anesthesia. Carolyn, you're an internist and Ken, according to your bio, you're board certified in six specialties, 
You're the only doctor I would need for my whole life cycle. Um, you don't want me, I assure you. <laughs> so could you guys tell me what holds the other specialties back from anesthesia's full court press? So Carolyn and Ken, I think you're best prepared to answer. What's holding the others back? Well, first, um, we should all applaud what the field of anesthesiology did. I would also argue that they had uh, something of an easier target, right? I mean, they, this is a field that uses a lot of machines. This is a field where many anesthesiologists would go from one OR to another. So standardizing how all the machines worked and so forth and standardizing the procedures made infinite sense. And frankly, I would think gave them a lot more flexibility. Um, I would also say that the surgeons were not that far behind uh, anesthesia, uh, probably by a number of years, but uh, really coming out of VA with the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, uh, which was then exported to private sector hospitals some years later. Um, Internists are somewhat different, right? Uh, there are certainly procedural internists, but um, it is a sort of different type of work. And I think if there's one thing that we've learned over these years, it's that uh, improving patient safety is a team sport. So I sure want to keep applauding what anesthesia did, but no specialty or individual group of physicians can do it alone. Um, and one might also argue that the anesthesiologists were utterly brilliant in avoiding some of the tougher problems, like conversations with surgeons about what time does surgery start and, you know, lots of well-known uh, tensions in that setting and so forth, all of which are amusing and part of the background un unless they impact how safe a care patients get. I would add perhaps a, a couple of things to that, and, and I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that one of the reasons anesthesia responded so early and so forcefully was that it was also facing an existential crisis from the malpractice uh, problem that it had. Uh, and so it, it had a real incentive, unlike almost no others, perhaps OBGYN faced a similar crisis not long afterwards. But, you know, that was a, a powerful driver for what anesthesia did and what then became part of its culture and has continued to this day as being a, a core part of, of its uh, culture. The progress has been, been made in other areas, as, as Carolyn noted, uh, much of my clinical work in the past was in emergency medicine, and, and I know emergency medicine has really made a, a lot of progress. Sometimes it's hard to assess that because the baseline data of where they started from isn't known, so it's hard to assess where we are today not knowing exactly where we started from, but I know certainly how emergency medicine is practiced today with an eye towards safety is very different than it was when I started out in the field in the, the late 1970s. So, uh, you know, I would think it's come a long way and I, I know others have made progress, uh, although that progress does seem to, uh, as you noted, uh, Karen, seems to have uh, perhaps stagnated a, a bit across uh, all specialties. Karen, it might be helpful to provide our listeners with a little background. The Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation was founded in 1985 after a primetime television show highlighted four horrible deaths related to anesthesia. As a specialty, it was embarrassing to watch, but I believe most importantly, our leadership showed that they weren't in denial and took the safety issue seriously. At that time, when you looked at mortality studies, they showed that you had a one in 10,000 chance of dying due to an anesthetic-related error or complication. The Anesthesia Patient Safety Foundation used very early outcomes data, but most importantly, closed claims data to identify the top areas to begin focusing in on. Things like unrecognized misplaced endotracheal tubes, when a breathing tube is mistakenly put into the esophagus versus the trachea unrecognized hypoxic mixtures that are being given by anesthesia machines, unrecognized disconnects between our endotracheal tubes and our breathing circuits. All these things were happening and we had no warning or clue if they were going on and when they were going on. A true partnership was created in in with industry to try to help solve these issues. From the work came numerous clinical improvements. 
things like pulse oximetry, capnography, fail-safe systems and anesthesia machines that prevented the inadvertent giving of a hypoxic mixture. On the pharmaceutical side, safer anesthetics with less side effects went into production and research and came to market. It wasn't only just machines and tools and pharmaceuticals, but things like handoff of care, training, and checklists also originated within the anesthesia communities. Karen mentioned the great work of Jeff Cooper, a great pioneer and, and true safety leader. Jeff, along with Dave Gaba and others, embraced simulation and created training programs that not only improved our clinical skills, but also those softer skills we hear about, team-based learning, leadership, communication-based skills, similar to what was done with crew research management applications in aviation. And to show the success of all these efforts, the last data I have seen showed that the chance of having an anesthetic-related complication or death from a complication is one in 450,000 per anesthetic. So that's one death in every 450,000 anesthetics compared to one death in every 10,000 anesthetics over 30 years ago. We are as close to Six Sigma as any specialty in medicine. And you know this model has been embraced and starting to be rolled out in other specialties, but I think it's a true case study of how to apply partnerships and not only use skills and techniques and equipment and machines, but also to use the softer skills of communication, team-based learning, and leadership like aviation does. Thank you all for your comments. And in particular, thank you, David, for all that insight and background. We applaud the absolutely amazing work of our colleagues in anesthesia and hope that they'll have an even greater influence um, in safety and other specialties. As I mentioned earlier, if you're interested, if you wanna learn more about anesthesia's pioneering work, I would encourage everyone to listen to our anesthesia episode with Dr. Jeff Cooper and Aman Mahajan. Marty, I'm turning this over to you for the next question. I would like to return to the theme of leadership. Um, so again, going back to the beginning of this movement, shortly after the IOM report came out, we saw just huge leadership step forward. The Veterans Administration, actually, Ken, when you were there even before the IOM report, but certainly afterwards, HRQ under John Eisenberg, and then you, Carolyn, uh, the Quick, the National Quality Forum, the Leapfrog Group, NCQA, they were all influential organizations that jumped in early. And for quite a while, there was this national interest and energy, and it felt like a real movement would produce big results. Ken, I think you and I authored an article with George Lumberg and other leaders, Lucian, Don, saying this is the number one priority. So we've had a lot of leadership, uh, I think, and yet we haven't seen the results we expected. And flash forward 20 years, we have the National Academy of Sciences now weighing in with a report last year that Paul Tang um, led the committee that developed it saying that patient safety was at a relative standstill in this country and many other reports that have kind of found similar findings in the last year. So I'd love your thoughts. What happened? What, why wasn't leadership in medicine enough to kind of produce the outcomes that we expected? Carolyn, why don't we again start with you? It's a really, really important question because um, I've heard this refrain a number of times. I think what has changed is not actually the amount of work going on to make care safer. And I say that as a uh, leading the panel of people who judged uh, awards for the awards given by the National Quality Forum and the Joint Commission every year in the name of John Eisenberg. And I have to say that some of the work that is submitted is completely breathtaking in its scope and what it's trying to do. And what's really impressive to me is that there's um, applications in from organizations you never heard of, but who are taking this very, very seriously. I think what has died down is the public noise. Um, you know, at the time this was made very, very tangible to the public as in it could happen to you. So in a funny way, although the work has 
emerged and continued to develop, the clear message to the public about what you can do, I think, has become much more muted. And what you can do and why you should care and how this would impact your decisions. I think that we do need more work in that area. Dave, what, what do you think? Well, I, first, I totally agree with Carolyn about some of the work that's being done out there. It's truly breathtaking, and there, there is some great innovation that continues. But I want to refocus this question a little bit, Marty. And, and we spend a lot of time talking about patient safety, but many of us, you know, including everybody in the panel here, believes that there's a bigger problem. We know the healthcare system is not safe for those receiving care, but it's also very dangerous for those that are providing care. You know, Lucian Leap and Paul O'Neill told us many years ago, we cannot achieve optimal patient safety without striving for optimal workforce safety. Before the pandemic, workplace injuries, burnouts, depression rates, and suicide rates were higher in healthcare than almost every other industry. And the pandemic has only made things worse. It's exposed many of these deficits and dangers to our caregivers. One of the things that scares me the most is workplace violence. We've seen, you know, three, four times increases in hospitals workplace violence affecting the frontline workers. This isn't just occurring on airplanes, it's occurring in emergency rooms and hospital lobbies and on floors within hospitals. And it's my belief that hospital leaders need to have more of a comprehensive approach to the safety of the healthcare system as a whole, including those that provide care and those that receive care. And when we figure that out together, I think you'll see some things move quicker than they have in the past. Yeah, thanks Dave. That's a, a really provocative, I think, thought. I, as you know, I do a lot of work with consumers in this space and it often feels like we're on different teams. Like there's the provider team and the, and the consumer team. And why is that when everyone's at risk, when systems are unsafe? So I'm hoping that is, you know, a collateral benefit from the risk that we see so clearly now that um, providers have. Ken, what are your thoughts on this question? I, I would agree with uh, what both Carolyn and, and David have, have said uh, as well. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's, it's hard for the professional community because there are so many uh, other issues that have come and assumed front page. Certainly, you know, COVID has, has uh, topped everything in the last couple of years. But even before that, there were all kinds of other things that, that uh, achieved center stage. And I think a lot of people... Uh, both in and, and outside the profession are asking, you know, why should this continue to be a, a top line issue? And perhaps we haven't done a good enough job in communicating to them that the problems still exist uh, and that there are solutions uh, that could be taken uh, that would reduce the problem. Hopefully we'll get to some of those later. But uh, I, I don't think that it has remained the center stage issue, certainly for the public and for their elected officials that it was 20 years ago. Yeah. So, Marty, if I could just jump in for one second. The one Please. thing I would uh, say is Ken is t so on point about other issues uh, being distraction. The pandemic has really highlighted very, very important issues of safety. To Dave's point, think about all of the campaigns there were to make, buy, find unforgotten warehouses full of personal protective equipment. A lot of concern about that. A lot of concern about the safety of caregivers and family members with a household member with COVID, right? How do you take care of somebody like this at home? A big challenge that continues to this very day. And most tragically, uh, we saw a horrendous number of deaths in nursing homes and other congregate settings. We've learned a lot from that, and it is my highest hope that we can learn from that and link that more directly to all the work that we've tried to do in safety before. This is not unique to COVID, but it is part of what we need to improve in healthcare moving forward. Thanks, Carolyn. You know, I just want to comment too that, you know, one of the things that's happened over the 20 years is we have seen this shift from hospitals to other settings, including home. I mean, it's not only continuing at home, but there's more and more care happening at home and in long-term care. So, um, you know, it's almost like the complexity is increasing as we keep fighting the fight. Absolutely. Okay, Karen, I think you've got the next question. Yes, and I just, another comment to the last uh, conversation 
we talk a lot about distrust. We can see distrust everywhere, but certainly patient harm is a source of distrust. Let's look at one last question about leadership, Ken. In my mind, (laughs) you've always been out there out front in patient safety. And if I'm right, you set up the VA National Center for Patient Safety in 1998, if I'm right. What emboldened you to be such an early and effective advocate? And also, I am sure you got some pushback early on. You, you were, you were, you know, exposing a problem that had laid buried for a long time. Um, what, what obstacles did you encounter and how did you ever have the courage to come forward? Well, thank you for the kind words and, and for the question. I, I think there are several things that uh, I would say in, in um response and you know the creating the VA National Center for Patient Safety was one of a half a dozen or more things that we were doing at VA and we created the National Patient Safety Partnership and and a number of other things uh, during the 1990s and and fundamentally it was because it was the right thing to do Uh, and I think that's what many of us in in healthcare are, are driven by is the you know to do the right thing, and I had a position and the opportunity to actualize that, uh, and so tried to run with it. Now I, I should tell you, as, as far as opposition, when I was discussing this with the what I proposed to do uh, with the secretary and and turn the White House, their comments were very straightforward. I mean, the secretary was clear. He said, you know, I. I I kind of understand what you're doing. My wife's a nurse and she tells me about all these bad things that happen. And and so I get it, but you understand this is political dynamite and that if this goes the wrong way, you're the first casualty. And so as long as the the rules of engagement were clear, I said, okay, I understand. And and we move forward. There were a couple of other things I think that influenced you know, my commitment, if you will, one was, you know, I was the director of health for California for for many years before I went to the VA. And, you know, I saw this stuff happening all the time in private hospitals. And indeed, one of the the questions that I often got when I went to the VA is, you know, isn't this all different? And I said, no, the, the main difference between the VA and the private sector is that things, you know, everything is made public in the VA. Uh, in the private sector, it's all secret and you just don't hear about it, but the same stuff is going on all the time. You know, I, I, as a licensing official for the state, I, you know, saw this stuff happening uh, all the time. The other thing that, that actually did influence my thinking significantly was uh, my wife in terms, she was a, a type one diabetic and had essentially every complication that a type one diabetic could get. And so there was a lot of opportunity to interface with the healthcare system over the 40 plus years that, that we were married. And, you know, I saw these things happening uh, in her care. So, I mean, it, it wasn't just professional, but it was also personal. And, and indeed there's, there's somewhat uh, some irony, I suppose that, you know, the, the person who coined the term never events my wife had at least two that significantly contributed to her ultimate demise. So, you know, it, it was, I think, the combination of knowing the problem, knowing it well, seeing it personally as well as professionally, and having the opportunity to do something about it, and really not caring uh, whether I was the first casualty or not. So, you know, it, it worked out. Well, I'm so sorry to hear about your wife probably good for the world that you took a tragedy and at least turned it into this passion for improving safety and healthcare and reducing never events, but we still have a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm struck that over the last two years, we've at the foundation have been working and built a coalition to work in the policy arena, trying to apply lessons that we learn from aviation, transportation, and other industries with steady progress. And it led us to support the idea of a national patient safety board that would be modeled after the National Transportation Safety Board because it seemed to be the missing component. You know, when I, I say, what do other industries have? They're so much safer. What don't we have? 
we don't have one federal agency solely focused on safety and particularly coming up with solutions. And my latest interests are autonomous solutions that use technology to take the burden off the front line. Um, there've been outstanding leaders in health reform for over like three decades who keep recommending this, but it never gets done. So Dave Mayer, you've been one of those outstanding leaders. I know the patient safety movement has been passionate. Talk to me about why can't we get this done? Well, thanks, Karen. Uh, you know, I'll start with just over a year ago when I was still the CEO of the Patient Safety Movement Foundation, we made a call for what we termed the patient safety moonshot, the concept of achieving zero preventable deaths by 2030. We have great examples when we put a stake in the ground and work together with a common goal. We have seen great things happen when we've done that, putting a man on the moon, curing polio. And we felt that sort of initiative and railing around a concept would be very beneficial. Besides so many other areas of focus within this arena, we felt there were three key areas that needed to be addressed. And you took the lead, you and the Jewish Healthcare Foundation on one we strongly believed in, and that was the creation of a national patient safety board. We've seen examples of this in children's hospitals and others now that are showing that shared learning and machine learning and data and, and using it the right ways can move forward and improve care and save lives. So the first of the three things was the creation of the national patient safety board. The second, we felt that incentives had to be aligned with the quality and safety of care being provided, not the volume and quantity of care that's being provided. And that still exists all too often in healthcare today. And the third major component we believed was transparency. We needed to embrace the concepts of transparency throughout the healthcare system, learning from our mistakes, feeling comfortable to raise our hand when something doesn't feel right, all those concepts of outcomes and transparency. And so I know the Nation Safety Movement Foundation and many others have strongly supported the work you and the Jewish Healthcare Foundation in calling for the creation of a national patient safety board. So kudos to you, Karen, and, and we're behind you all the way. Let's hope maybe, uh, you know, maybe 2022 will be our year. We're trying. I'm going to turn this over to Marty. Well, Karen, I want to just underscore that we have two panelists here, Ken and Dave, who've, who've experienced loss in their own family from unsafe care. And it just kind of underscores the point that the line between users and providers of care is pretty ephemeral. We all should be on the same team because it touches all of our families. Uh, so thank you for sharing that today, um, Ken. I appreciate it. I didn't know that about your family experience. But anyway, another, another mind-boggling gap for us, and Karen, this also gets to your point about why we are not hearing more from sort of an organized patient community is I think they're confused. You know, after um, 20 years, I think they don't know who to report to when something happens. Our, our whole reporting system seems very haphazard to them. When I talk to them, they say, there's nobody in charge. We don't know who's in charge of patient safety in this country. Is it CMS? Is it CDC? Is it the Joint Commission? Is it someone else? And we're still not doing a good job of, you know, sort of collecting and aggregating data. Um, preventable harm is not captured in death certificates well. Sometimes it is, but not consistently. Even CDC says that. Uh, nursing homes in many states don't have to report infections. There's legislation pending about that. There's still wide variation in reporting requirements in ambulatory care and other settings and, and also from state to state. Ken, you were an early leader in this space and your role at NQF, one of your you know, first major accomplishments that I remember was the never event list that was adopted and used widespread. So when you look back 20 years and see how that was used and how perhaps how it wasn't used, what are your thoughts on how we can improve reporting so that we can actually measure progress against some kind of a baseline that we can have faith in is, is kind of giving us the data we need? Yeah, a couple things. I, you know, I think the uh, the idea of a national patient safety board, which I support that uh, wholly, um, that has to be premised on uh, mandatory reporting. You know, the reporting that provides the, the grist for the aviation safety reporting board or the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Uh, you know, what they do is is based on mandatory reporting of of events that occur. 
And as you know, Marty, for I've been a longtime advocate of, of national reporting uh, of patient safety events. The NEVER events is a, a good list to start from. There are some version of that now uh, enacted in about 29 states, which means that there's another 21 where there's no reporting at all. But the problem is that those the list often is codified in statute. So, you know, the, the never event list, if you want to call it that, technically serious reportable events, um, you know, has changed four times, will probably change again before too long. And as it changes, the, the state reporting requirements have it changed with it. So those states that adopted the, the first list or the, the second list, you know, they're not necessarily uh, comparable. And you have all kinds of, of uh, variations across the state. So you really can't compare what's occurring in different states because the data is just not comparable. And the solution, the, the obvious solution, is that there should be national reporting. Uh, and there, that list should be kept current and updated, and it should be a, a mandatory requirement that these events get reported. Um, even in the states where there is reporting, we know that it's extremely variable. You know, some hospitals report frequently and assiduously, uh, others don't report at all. Uh, and there really isn't any consequences uh, for not reporting. So, you know, they, again, I think the solution is uh, mandatory national reporting. And do you see that happening? Uh, do you have a place in mind? Do you think you see that happening at CDC or CMS or uh, a new place? Well, I, I think where the repository of the information is, could be any number of places. CDC is, is fine. It could be at HHS, you know, in, in downtown. It could be at other places as well. Uh, I think that's a, a minor issue uh, relative to getting the legislation enacted that would uh, require the reporting in the first place. Kind of going to share an anecdote with, with the group, but I'm from Minnesota, which was uh, one of the first states to do never event reporting. And after my mother grew her children, she became the church secretary. And every year when the report came out, she would put it in the church bulletin. And she got the spin right because she said she would remind people or have the priest remind people, these are the good hospitals. These are the hospitals that report. This stuff happens everywhere, but these are the hospitals that we can trust because they're transparent. So I think they did a good job, actually, in Minnesota of really getting that message out in the public that, you know, this does happen everywhere. It could happen in good hospitals as well as bad, but these are the ones that are responsible and reporting it forward. Yeah, I, I joined with the governor in, in uh, making that announcement when Minnesota uh, initiated reporting. Well, clearly my mother at Our Lady of the Lake in Mom, Minnesota heard you or heard that event and, uh, and followed through as an acolyte. Uh, Marty, I just wanted to say, I guess you have to have a sense of humor or understand why people don't trust government reporting. But in Pennsylvania, in the summer of 2020, the cumulative, the total number of COVID deaths actually declined. So I asked the Secretary of Health, how do you get undead? Because um, <laughs> you know, I really want to figure out how to be undead. She said, oh, well, you just change the criteria of what a COVID death is. So in the middle of the summer, they changed the criteria and suddenly people undied. And, you know, you worry a lot. Uh, but I also have to say with the airline industry, the one thing that I think is really positive is when they formed Asias, every airline signed on and agreed it was in their interest to give the most accurate, open, rapid data possible because they saw as an industry that everybody would benefit if they got safer. And I, I still fear that we haven't quite gotten there yet. Thanks, Marty, go ahead. Okay, so um, this is really our last question. So it's an opportunity for us to kind of collect our thoughts with some closing comments to or lead us into that at least. Uh, we've mentioned several times in the course of this conversation that patient safety seems to have lost its mojo, at least in the United States. We, we actually see some very strong leadership out of the World Health Organization just last year calling on countries to prioritize this. But in the United States, we're just not hearing about it, as, as, as Karen has mentioned. It's not in the Biden administration's draft strategic plan. We filed comments about that, and there's dialogue happening there. As Carol mentioned, consumer advocates seem less insistent, less loud about this. Um, obviously, there's a lot of other competing priorities. 
And I'm at a point as, as a person who identifies primarily as a patient advocate that the average system doesn't even have medical safety on their radar. So how do we get looking forward now, uh, shifting from the past 20 years to perhaps the next 20 or 10, because Dave's got a 10 year plan. How do we get organizations and individuals to care enough to demand change or to at least choose the safest providers? And um, what will get kind of the attention that we need to the WHO plan or HRQ has a plan, IHI has a plan um, to really make this again prominent in sort of the American medical sphere. Kellen, why don't we start with you? So it is really, really a great question. By definition, our healthcare system is public and private. The government has a very substantial role, but the private sector does as well. So I think that that kind of approach to partnership would need to be uh, sort of the way to go. Um, I, you know, just picking up on Ken's earlier point, transparency um, can be painful at times, but I think it has been very, very good for VA. So to this day, if a patient is harmed under our medical care, that is immediately disclosed to the patient and family. This is presuming that the patient uh, survived and uh, with an apology and a commitment that we will do better about that in the future. That is not something that happens uh, across the healthcare system, but I do think that transparency has got to be linked with effective strategies for what do we do about this. To that extent, I would say the partnership for patients was a real beacon of light mm -hmm. uh, coming out of CMS, but I think what really drove it was a very, very strong public-private collaboration with the LAN network, you know, constantly sharing lessons about what worked, what didn't, and uh, so forth. It's complicated business. And so balancing, you know, short-term wins with the longer-term improvements that we need to make is going to be a very substantial challenge here. I think we're up to it. I think in reviewing lessons from this pandemic, which is top of mind for everyone right now, that's gonna give us a real boost to think about this topic in a more meaningful way, because it's something everyone can understand and has experienced in some fashion. Supply chain is a safety issue. Totally a, a safety yep. issue. And we have now an Occupational Safety and Health Administration really taking a very, very strong interest in the uh, safety of healthcare workers, which okay. is new and hugely important. Dave, I feel like you've already kind of weighed in by saying, you know, the connectivity between provider safety and worker safety is, I mean, and, and, pa and patient safety is there, but what more would you add? Marty, the only thing I'll add is, is I guess, as I've gotten older and, and reached this age, I've become a little more cynical. And uh, sometimes I feel like George Carlin during a stand-up comedy act or something. But my gray hair has taught me that for, for many, Healthcare is still a business. And there are many stakeholders that are out there that like the current state. They think everything's fine. Healthcare is doing well. And why do we want to change it? We've had many pushbacks when we've been trying to get legislative discussions or initiatives going forward by lobbyists for many of the large organizations in healthcare who don't want to see change. They want to keep the status quo. And, and so maybe that's my gray hair talking or, or 30 years of trying to create change, but I, I still believe we got to continue to fight, but it's going to be an uphill battle to get any effective changes done with all the different priorities being distributed around and, and issues that administrators have to face. So um, that, that's the last I'll say about that. Ken? Well, I, I, you know, I would agree with the, the other comments that have been made. I, I think if we, you know, the comments were made earlier about how does, how do we get the administration, uh, current administration more focused on the issue and, and include patient safety more prominently in some of the plans and agendas going forward. And I, I think, you know, the COVID pandemic and, and all of its ramifications and, and complexities provides a lot of opportunities uh, to highlight and, and showcase this issue. And I guess I, I would revert to, you know, one of the fundamental maxims in patient safety is, you know, make it easy uh, to do it right and hard to do it wrong. So as far as, as how do we 
get the administration uh, engaged. Uh, we need to find ways to uh, make it easy for them to do what's right, you know, and, and, and focus on, on that. Thanks, Ken. Karen, I've seen you nodding as each of our <laughs> presenters have given us their thoughts. I'd, I'd love to hear you. I, I know you think about these issues too, and I'm going to pass it back to you with uh, the opportunity to either comment or make some closing remarks. Well, thank you. I have to say what a privilege it is for me to be here today with Dave and Ken and Carolyn and Marty. You've all devoted careers to safety and you know, become somewhat legendary in this field. And I, I'm delighted to be able to share an hour with you. And I thank you for being here. I would just say that, you know, I always joke that I've played the whole xylophone of safety <laughs> solutions and um, looking for another note that might uh, add, add to the music. And I really am somewhat excited about the possibilities of a national patient safety board if among other things, just collecting all the things we know that work and coming up with um, an ongoing outpouring of good solutions, it's just time. And I would add to that, you know, things have changed a lot. My involvement began in uh, 97, 98, and there wasn't a lot of safety technology around. But now I'm, I'm sitting here in Pennsylvania and we have 18 wheel semis barreling down our turnpike without a driver. Technology is really advanced in the field of safety. And I say, let's go for it. Let's start applying it the way other industries have. So anyway, if any of our listeners want to learn more about um, our efforts to establish a national patient safety board and what it could be and what it isn't, please visit npsb.org. We also welcome any comments and suggestions you have. If you found today's conversation helpful, please share it um, or any of our other podcasts with your friends and colleagues. We can't improve the effectiveness of our healthcare system without your help. Um, you, our listeners, friends, supporters, you're an essential part of the solution. So let's go forward. I, I know this is going to be, Dave, you're not exaggerating. You've walked 3,000 miles, but um, I know how much everyone here cares. I think people who are listening to these podcasts care, and let's find a way to make progress in 2022. One thing we know, the pandemic's been a setback. We have less safety than we had before, so hopefully that will motivate ourselves and others. Thank you all. If you want a transcript or the show notes with references to related articles and resources, that can be found on our website at npsb.org podcast. Up next for Patient Safety is a production of the National Patient Safety Board Advocacy Coalition in partnership with the Pittsburgh Regional Health Initiative and Jewish Healthcare Foundation. It is executive produced and hosted by me, Karen Wolk-Feinstein, Megan Butler and Scotland Huber are my associate producers. This episode was edited and engineered by Jonathan Kirsting and the Pittsburgh Technology Council. Thank you, Tech Council. Our theme music is from Shutterstock.com. Social media and design are by Lisa George and Scotland Huber. Special thanks to Robert Ferguson and Stephen Guo. Thank you all for listening.